This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 160, with Sam Marks. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hi there, MC Lobster here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today, and in today's show, we're going to look at how to utilize speed and strategy to gain a competitive advantage in your marketplace. My guest today is Sam Marks. Sam has been passionately tied to the startup scene and traveled-based lifestyle for the last decade. In 2009, at the age of 24, he founded Sky Sig in the UK, which became Europe's largest e-cigarette company and was acquired for $100 million in 2013. Prior to SkySig, Sam was a co-founder of three other startups with successful exits, including the first while he was in college in 2005. He continues to work full-time in the startup scene, both as an entrepreneur, he's currently the co-founder of Coworker.com, and Angel Investor. He also travels throughout the year, having now visited over 90 countries. It was his new journey into the investment world and all the unknown new age strategies that eventually led him and Johnny to start the Invest Like a Boss podcast. Please share your feedback and thoughts with me on today's interview. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter by tweeting me at MC Lobsher or by email at info at CashflowNinja.com. And please remember to join our mailing list by signing up at CashflowNinja.com or texting CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. You can support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. And when you become a patron, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. You can become a patron by visiting CashflowNinja.com forward slash support. Have you read Rich Dad Poor Dad? Are you interested in real estate investing and don't know where to start or to get the results you want? For valuable information to get you started, visit JoinOps Properties at JoinOpsProperties.com. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at CashflowNinja.com forward slash private lending. Spartan Invest have a proven plan and system helping investors creating passive income and wealth through turnkey real estate ownership in the exciting market of Birmingham, Alabama. Find out why Birmingham has got it going on, why it's a steal right now, why it's a millennial hangout, a hidden gem, and one of the most exciting investment opportunities you have never heard of. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama, at CashflowNinja.com forward slash Spartan. 
I've spoken about the most powerful system on the planet, on the show, the banking system. And my firm, Valhalla Wealth Financial, helps people reclaim the banking function within their own lives through leveraging the premium tools and strategies of the wealthy. If you're interested in reclaiming the banking function within your own life and the infinite banking concept, you can access a free webinar presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Sam, welcome to the show. MC, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you please share a little bit about your background and journey with my listeners? Happy to. And I would say that my journey was created by a couple of events that happened to me at a relatively young age. Uh, when I was in college, I was arrested five times as a freshman in college, which any of your listeners that go to or went to school in the US, will know how ridiculous it is that you can't drink until you're 21, especially a guy like you from South Africa, you're probably drinking at age 13 or something. <laughs> but, you know, I was 18 in school, got arrested three, four times for underage drinking, fake ID, criminal mischief, just small little petty misdemeanors. But it forced me to really rethink my future, because I didn't have a lot of options. I wasn't going to become a, a a criminology major and go work for the government. I wasn't going to get hired by any corporations out of school with that type of background. And in fact, I was getting kicked out of my major and had to change my major to business. So it really left like a chip on my shoulder. And I had to, I had to create something with my life because no one was going to give me anything. So that was one big event. Um, that ended up forcing me sort of into entrepreneurship. I built my first internet based company when I was 20, about a year later and sold it my senior year. Did a lot of other stuff. I worked for startups that had successful exits uh, at age 22 to 23. I became an affiliate at age 23, was making, I guess I can say on this podcast, it's cash flow podcast, right? <laughs> I, was, I was generating about $100,000 a month in revenue, and about half of that was profit. Um, and one other really influential thing. So this is all before SkySig, which I'm better known for. Um, one really influential thing that happened around that time when I, I got a mentor and I was being taught how to do affiliate marketing. And I remember getting to the point where we were doing about five or six leads or sales a day and we were making about $100. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I'm driving around in a, in a BMW, I have a, a full-time job I'm getting paid and on the side, I'm doing affiliate marketing, making $120 a day. And the guy that was teaching me how to do this stuff, my mentor, was just like, dude, you are so small-minded. There are people out there doing a thousand times as much as this every day, 2,000, 3,000 times as much as this. And you're happy and, and complacent with $100 a day. And that really opened my mind to just how big the internet was. And pretty soon in the months after that, we were able to scale to you know, $100,000 a month. And I think without that experience... Your, your, your brain is almost limited in its capacity to see the horizon and, and visualize just how big the internet is and, and how big a digital-based business can become. So that was an extremely important part of my life and really opened my eyes and my brain to, to thinking big. Now, Sam, you are from the United States, right? And you've traveled and lived in, in quite a number of places in the world. Yeah, that's correct. And then you moved to the UK, and that's when you started SkySig. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more of how you founded SkySig? Yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of goes back into that last story. Um, 
we were an affiliate. We we're looking for other affiliate style offers, and we were out at a conference in Las Vegas. And a manufacturer of one of the first, very first, so SkySig was the electronic cigarette company. Uh, short the short story of it is it became Europe's largest e-cigarette company by 2013. We started in 2010, uh, and it was acquired in 2013 by a tobacco company. Uh, and in 2009. Anyone who knows the electronic cigarettes today know a pretty advanced product that is almost flawless and, uh, and, and very productive in terms of, of its output and vapor and stuff. But back then, there was these really rinky-dink primitive products. And someone, a manufacturer of one of the first electronic cigarettes found us at this conference, knew that we were relatively large affiliates and knew how to sell things online and came and showed us his product and said, hey, could you sell this for us? And we looked at it and we're like, this thing... Is a total piece of crap. No, we can't. But then when we started thinking about the industry, we said, wow, tobacco industry, how big is the tobacco industry? And these products could get better with better design, better engineering, better branding, better marketing. This could really be disruptive to tobacco. So we started paying attention to it. And about six months later, we saw the time was right and the market was ripe for disruption. And we decided we're going to start SkySig. And this is something that you started with a laptop remotely as well. And did you have team members from your previous business that you guys started together and started growing your team? Talk a little bit about the, the startup phase. Sure. So it, it, it was really just me in, initially. And the people that I had been doing affiliate marketing with decided they would put in some of the money to start the company. So in total, and this is, I think, one of the most impressive things about the business is we never had venture capital. The most money that we ever had injected into the business was $150,000. And that started with $50,000, which was enough for us to secure our initial purchase order, create a brand, create a website, and of course, select a market. We did a little bit of research and decided the US was obviously the number one market we wanted to go after. But there was a couple of brands that had already emerged there and doing well. So we said, instead of trying to compete with them, they already have a jump start and probably more capital and resources. Let's just take the next best market. And we didn't know anything about the UK, but if you look at it from a tobacco standpoint, cigarettes are extremely expensive. It's cold and there's the smoking ban. So people have to go outside to smoke, but they don't want to go outside. And it's English speaking. So it's easy for us to, to, uh, to be able to market to. And it's a relatively health conscious crowd. So we decided let's give it a shot. And I was only 25 at the time and happy to, happy to jump on a plane and go on an adventure. So I went over there and. To start, it was it was just me. I hired my buddy that was out of college just to come over for two months and work with me. And what we did was we actually rented a, a Volkswagen hatchback and we filled it with product. We drove all the way around the UK from London up into Scotland to Edinburgh, across to Glasgow, back through the Midlands and back to London over the course of four weeks. And every single day, it was just getting our hustle on, going into pubs, handing out product. And, uh, and promoting it just, you know, hand to hand and, um, and, and getting people to try to product and spread the word. And one thing that I picked up too from the, the beginning of our conversation is the skill set that you, that you learned and that you became successful uh, at was affiliate marketing to take that into this business. And then obviously the marketing aspect as well. What was the complementary skill set as initially from team members? You had mentioned your friend that you brought on, uh, as one of uh, your first partners. What were some of the other complementary skill sets initially that you needed to, to get this off the ground? Well, my my friend that I hired from college actually 
actually didn't. You probably won't mind me saying you didn't really have any skills. The purpose of him coming over was he was a good college friend that helped me socially, uh, just in the sense of if you're going to go out to a pub and promote, it's much better to do it with you and a friend than by yourself, especially in a foreign country like the UK. So he was somebody that we had fun with. We'd go out and drink pints, loosen up a bit, and then go out and start promoting. But by far, the biggest skill that I applied to SkySig was, was affiliate marketing, not only being able to, to do internet marketing myself, but understanding how affiliates and affiliate networks work and then creating our own affiliate network, right? Being able to right. manage early affiliates, which was an absolutely essential thing that we did it and helped uh, secure our success short and long term that nobody else was doing. And then when you're talking about a product business like this, um, of course, we were, well, we, we ended up manufacturing in China. So having some skills there certainly helped. And I had actually around the time I had started my other business college, I had created a product and was also sourcing product from China, just, you know, doing a bunch of early budding entrepreneurial type of things. So I actually had some relatively decent experience in sourcing products from China, working with manufacturers on designs and stuff. And I think that cut down a, a big curve for us in terms of hitting the ground, rolling, uh, being able to interface with them from a distance not having to go to China to get things set up and uh, and getting product that was that was slightly better in design and packaging than anyone else that was that was in the market at that point. And now you're scaling your business, you're getting it off the ground, you're getting the word out, you're doing internet marketing. Can you give my listeners an example of some of the times that you were able to to, to scale your business and take it to the next level? Yeah, so when we started the business, the the crazy thing was you couldn't even advertise, right? So how do you market a product that you can't advertise? How do you market a product that you can't market? So that is actually why we ended up getting in the car and going around. So, so electronic cigarettes were initially classified as tobacco, which meant you can't advertise. You can have a website, you could get SEO, but you, you just can't, you can't buy media anywhere. So that's why we ended up starting by going around and doing, you know, ground floor promo style uh, advertising and getting pe- uh, product in people's hands. Now, the beautiful thing about electronic cigarettes is when we hit the market in 2010, no one in the UK knew about electronic cigarettes and like some 30% of the adult population smoked cigarettes. So these things were amazingly viral. If you got it in someone's hand, they go into the pub. They're like, hey, look at me. I can smoke this in the pub while you're outside smoking a real cigarette. Everyone comes in, starts asking questions. It, it was just an extremely good product at a good time. And we were able to scale up from zero to about 20 sales a day just by doing that that road tour. After that, slowly but surely, advertising started to loosen up. So we were able to do things like AdWords. We were able to buy uh, some small niche mailer. Uh, we were able to do a little bit of o- online advertising on some portals. And that got us up to about 50 sales a day. And then what was something that we had never planned for, which ended up being an amazing asset to the business was the first employee that I actually hired was this guy, Damo. And his only experience previously, he was 22. His only experience was being a stop boy at a, at a pharmacy. So really no experience, but he had great attitude and really, really had a, a passion for electronic cigarettes because his mom had used them and was able to quit smoking using them. So he came on board with me and he said, and we came up with the idea, let's set up mall kiosks because that was one place that you really could advertise all the malls in Scotland and, and Northern England were happy 
to take our money and let us set up a promotional stand. So we went into first, you know, started as one mall. We set up a promotional stand demonstrating the product. And it was like, you just see a flock of people coming from all directions to check this stuff out. It was like, you know, it was like magic. So we ended up scaling that to 10 or 10 or 12 uh, mall kiosks. And that got us up well over 150 sales a day, which was a really nice business, profitable business. And then things started to snowball. We were able to do larger media buys. We were able to advertise in radio, uh, eventually TV, print newspaper. We got into, you know, if, if anyone's from London, we were advertising on the sides of buses. Um, and with all that, we were able to scale our online business to about 800 sales a day. And after that, it was retail and, and that, of course, had a huge scale to it. What were some of the biggest challenges that you guys faced and adversity that you had to overcome creating and then scaling this business and then growing your team, bringing on new personnel? Well, I th if you think about the, the speed of which we went from zero to when we, in 2010 to exiting in 2013, we had 80 employees, sales of over two and a half million dollars a month, retail distribution in, in town thousand stores. Things move very quick. Uh, that's the only way I've ever known how to, to do business is a lot of speed, a lot of momentum, and a lot of confidence. And I, I think that's why getting the right partners is so important because anything that you're moving so fast with, you're going to have a lot of a lot of heavy setbacks. And first and foremost, your partners are your are your support group. You know, you, you, you got to be persistent and you got to be able to get through tough times. But with that business, and it was endless adversity. We had uh, just from the start, we weren't allowed to advertise. We had to figure out how to get product into people's hands without being able to market a product. Uh, we got hacked several times. We had several different lawsuits. I mean, I was always personally scared of what Big Farm and Big Tobacco were thinking. If anyone's uh, read Richard Branson's book, and he, uh, he talks about when he was building Virgin Airlines and all the dirty tricks that British America, uh, British Airways was playing. And there was just, there was a lot of weird things going on in our business that we thought somebody was, was, uh, you know, putting on us essentially. Um, in China, we had a, our factory burned down. We, I mean, there's just endless types of things that, that were really big. And any one of those events individually could have crippled the business, but you got to be persistent and you got to, you got to get up when you get knocked down. Now, you mentioned the factory burned down. Now, from an operational standpoint and the way that the company was structure, uh, structured uh, from your supply chain, did mm -hmm. you guys own the manufacturing part of your supply chain? Was it your factory? Did you subcontract that? And uh, what happened after the factory burned down? <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, this was one of, the, one of the craziest days, or let's say the craziest 48 hours of the business. And what happened was... It, this ended up being one of the, the best things that happened to the business. But it's again, it's, it's turning lemons into lemonades. And what happened was we had a supplier that was in China that was not our, was not our factory, was not our primary supplier, write us and say, Hey, you might want to, you know, you might want to check out what's going on. I think your factory just burned down. And of course I'm like, what the heck, you know, what does this mean? And he sends me this little snippet of some online uh, you know, Shenzhen newspaper. And there's a, a photo of a, of a, of a factory that looks like ours. And it is, I mean, it's burnt, right? There's nothing left inside. And I, of course, asked our supplier immediately and they're like denying everything. No, 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 everything's fine. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. So I, 
I book an air, a flight to China the very next morning and I go over there within three hours of landing, I'm at the factory and sure enough, it's burnt, totally burnt down. And what I saw at that, at that very moment was probably the most amazing operational thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And it was their entire staff, 900 people in an assembly line, moving new equipment into a building that was right next door. And within 36 hours, they were able to set up an entirely new 50,000 square foot factory and production and supply was only interrupted for 36 hours. Like if I, if I hadn't gone there and I never would have even known that it was disrupted. And that just, that was so, so eye opening to what, you know, <laughs> what humans can do, but also the efficiency and productivity power that China has in some of those, some of those areas was unbelievable. Um, but it also exposed a big part of a vu- vulnerability. You know, if that hadn't happened, if they didn't get back up and running, we didn't really have a second or third supplier set up and ready to go that could have crippled our business. All that work could have been shut down by something that was out of our control and that we hadn't planned for. Uh, and at that point forward, we, we ended up doing a joint venture and setting up our own manufacturing uh, in China, which was a huge, huge differentiator in the category. Uh, what a story. That, that, is, mm. that, is, that must have been something to see. Uh, the other question mm. that I had for you too is you had mentioned the t- tobacco industry and Richard Branson's experience with uh, British Airways. And mm. boy, you did jump into an industry where there are giants there. So strategy is key. And that seems to be a huge part of your success in this mm. space. I mean, so basically you have to approach it it is from like a David versus with Goliath, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the key strategic wins uh, that you had to beat out this these huge giants in a, in a very ultra competitive space and an emergent industry such as e-cigarettes? Good question. And when we got into the industry, tobacco was not in the industry and Big Farm was not in the industry. Later, did we hear when we ended up getting acquired that they, you know, tobacco sales worldwide, even now are continue to drop at eight to 10% a year, especially in developed countries, even more so. Uh, and they essentially credit or discredit electronic cigarettes with almost all of that. Uh, so if you think about what that means to a tobacco company that are, these are, you know, hundred billion dollar companies on up, that's billions of dollars each year that they're losing in market cap and in, in revenue and sales. So it was very scary to be part of this business. When we started it, it was obviously low under the radar, but as it grew and it, it was starting to make headlines everywhere, it was actually really scary because, uh, and I think it was good that I was young. And I think when you're younger, you feel a little bit more immortal and um, you just operate off, off coffee and adrenaline a lot of times. But there was a course as in any business that's successful. So many startups fail. The ones that are successful Oftentimes it's, it's just a good strategy and of course, good execution. But looking back, there was, there were definitely some strategic wins for us. I think the biggest one we kind of already touched on, which was setting up our own manufacturing and what this gave us the ability to do was control everything product wise. So we're getting cheaper costs. We're getting much better quality. We're getting our own exclusivity and MC. The most important thing that nobody, nobody realized at the time and still a lot of people don't realize is by having our own manufacturing, no one could see our manufacturing. No one could see our production. So 
I could go over there anytime and walk in any other manufacturing facility that did electronic cigarettes. And they were happy to have me in because I was Sam from SkySig and they wanted my business. And when I would walk in, I would see all of our competitors. I would see everyone that was producing in the US and all the other countries. And I would sit there and look at what they're producing. What designs are they working on? You know, what are their volumes? What are some of the, you, you can just get so much data and intel by sitting there and looking at their manufacturing. It was, it was mind numbing. And no other brands were going over there. I was, every time I was over there, I was the only person that was over there spending time there. It wasn't a really pleasant place to hang out, but, uh, man, it was a, it was definitely a competitive advantage. So that was a huge one, especially when we ended up getting acquired. We realized how important that was to, to the different parties that were looking at us. And I think another big one was, retail when we went into retail we decided what's you know what is everyone else doing okay how do you go into retail we didn't know how to do it we were online guys but how do you take an online product to go into retail and what everyone was doing was they had a distribution network that was already set up right so it's someone that has distribution set up to 3000 petro slash gas stations or to you know 10,000 different grocery stores or Tesco or any of these other ones, right? Well, that's, that's not that strong. That's not robust because if you lose that contract, if they price gouge you, if, if, if they do anything, someone outbids you, you don't have that anymore, right? You right. lose all that distribution. Now, what's unique about the UK compared to a place like the US is most of the corner stores are independents. So there's some like 50,000 independent corner stores that sell newspaper and cigarettes and beers and all that stuff. So we said, well, how can we get in all those? Well, there's only one way to get in all those and that's doing it the hard way. That's knocking on doors. That's doing individual sales with a field team with, you know, with your own reps. And then of course, getting into, um, again, for a U.S. audience, be like a place like Costco in the U.K. is a place called Booker's Cash and Carry. So where all those independent stores buy their supplies from. So that was our whole focus is like, let's do this the hard way because all right, if you get in 15,000 stores, which we ended up getting in by the time we were acquired, you can't, t- if you take away 5%, it doesn't screw up your sales, right? If you lose 5%, if they decide to stop buying, you're still good. But if you have one distribution point to 10,000 stores and you lose that, you're done. So we, d- we, w- we did it the hard way. And uh, by the time we were acquired, our, our sales distribution network was extremely robust. Now, Sam, then the exit strategy out of the business, you got out of the business. Can you uh, just walk us through uh, how you got out of it, how it was initiated and uh, the process? Yeah, good question. Because I was always scratching my head thinking, how do companies get acquired? You know, does someone email their customer service queue and say, hey, we want to buy you? Does someone come knock on your door? Is it, are you introduced through a mutual contact? And honestly, today I still have a lot of those questions. But for us, what happened was we ended up uh, knowing through a supplier, one of the bigger companies that was operating in the US, e-cigarettes. And I had reached out to their CEO and said, hey, we're operating in the UK. You're operating in the US. If we're not competing and we're not crossing markets, we can work together in some form or fashion. We can share data. We can... You know, we can work together on sales optimization, product optimization. Uh, and in the end, that company was acquired by a tobacco company and they decided they wanted to go international with electronic cigarettes. And when they did, either by coincidence or be, we were also the largest in the UK at the time. And I would say unarguably the best brand. 
but also we had that relationship in place. So when they wanted to move internationally, they said, let's have a conversation. And around that same time, uh, another, another company that we knew through, um, someone in finance was also looking to get electronic cigarettes. And, um, we ended up having two companies that were interested in us. And, and that, that, that point we hired investment bankers and put together a formal sales process. And, and one of those companies ended up buying us. You're listening to Sam Marks on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. You're listening to Sam Marks on the Cashflow Ninja podcast, and now back to our interview. Now, at what stage of the business did you decide, you know, this is something that I would want to sell? Like how far into the process and into the, the life of the business were you? The business was always a, a business that always gave you anxiety. You didn't know if you were going to wake up, if government was going to crack down on it, if you were going to have litigation from a number of different angles. You just didn't really know what the future was because it was still an emerging product that was sort of in a gray area. Plus, you always had the, the concern of big tobacco and big farm, how they were going to look at this. Were they going to play dirty tricks? So as fun as it was, it was always a business that we knew that at some point, tobacco and big farm were probably going to own it. And it's just a decision if they want to build or they want to buy. So our whole strategy was always go as fast as we can, become the market leader and see what happens. Uh, but as soon as we got this, the, the actual sales process going and we had two, two, it was two tobacco companies that were interested in us and we had kind of letters of intent, we, we knew that the numbers were already there, that it was probably going to make sense to sell the business. Now you sold the business, you, you've gotten the payout. How did that feel? And what, what was next on the horizon? What did you do uh, after the sale? After the sale, it was, I mean, it was crazy. It was, I got um, so emotionally and mentally drained through the sales process. You would have thought we were selling ExxonMobil. It was over 10,000 pages worth of documents and due diligence that we had to, you know, we had to put together through our, our limited team um, of people that, that could actually accomplish that. I think on the manufacturing side, I had to produce 4,000 documents, which was essentially me plus uh, the, the manufacturing owner and a couple of other light resources, but it was six months of absolutely grueling work of administrative work, the type of stuff that you, you know, we don't want to do, right. We want to, we want to build something. Um, so at the very end, I got really, really sick. I was in the hospital for about 12 days and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I think I was just so stressed and, and depleted of energy mental, mentally and physically, mentally, physically, and emotionally that I just got really ill and my body was almost like just shutting down. Uh, but after it was over, you know, there was the headline, there was the payout and life got really exciting again, uh, really, really quick. It was, you know, it was awesome. It was, it was my dream to make something like that happen. I will say the only thing is that once you, <laughs> there is, there is a dark side to success. And I think my whole life was predicated on achieving success and what that would bring. And then once you have that, sort of put to you on a silver platter in a sense, you can become 
dull to it and immune to it really quickly. So I think it's very, very important to always reset your goals and to, of course, always be learning something new to, to challenge yourself. Staying on the business before we get into the investment stuff, which I'm very excited to talk to you about mm-hmm. as well. Talk us about your latest venture. You and I uh, discussed it uh, re- relatively quickly, but you're doing some really exciting things with Coworker. Can you uh, share with my listeners what it is and uh, share a little bit about this latest uh, project? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so about a year and a half ago, my co-founder, Leanne Beasley, and I were in Hong Kong. This was two years after the exit of SkySig. And I was, in a way, working on reinventing myself. Um, I was learning a lot of new things. But, you know, it's once you, once you have that, once you're in a, a fast-paced startup that's got a lot of growth, I think it's similar to being like NFL players or, or sports players. When they're in that type of environment every day for 10 years, 20 years, it's very, very hard to shut it down, right? It's right. almost like taking your brain off of a drug in a sense. And so I was naturally looking for, for something to build again. And we were in Hong Kong and we went into our first co-working space and it was a light switch because I had been working in cafes and from home and just public areas for the last two years. I didn't even know co-working spaces existed. When I went into one and I saw this modernized workspace with all these types of hustling entrepreneurs and creative people, I didn't want to leave. Like I, I would stay there all day, 12 hours a day. I would go in, have my breakfast there, work there, hang out there afterwards. It was just, it was just an amazing place. And it, and the category is growing so fast. Um, but back then there was no centralized resource to find co-working spaces. So we decided to build it and, we uh, we acquired coworker.com and then we we built you know essentially what it is now. If any of your listeners want to check it out, it's like TripAdvisor for coworking. That's kind of phase one. There's some really exciting phases ahead, but it, but more than anything, it's a really cool industry and category to be part of because we really really believe in coworking MC. I think you're working at a coworking space every now and then, yes. um, but it's 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 just a it's a great it's a great revolution in the workspace, and I'm just happy to be part of it. Yeah, it is quite amazing and. I utilize it as well because you want to build a virtual organization where you Mm -hmm. can grab a tablet uh, and step into any space and be connected through the internet to the entire world and conduct your business. And this does add that element, as you were saying, of that there's energy because there's a lot of of people in there uh, that are very, very driven as well, trying to do amazing things. And you do meet very, very interesting people uh, in these co-working spaces. So it's kind of... uh, it's kind of like a new little tribe that's being formed. Yeah, we think so. And, and the, the demographic trends that are happening in all different categories of remote workers, people that just have two or three days a week that they can work from home to the people that are solo entrepreneurs or mobile startups, the trends are just enormous. We're talking over a billion people by 2020 are going to be classified as some type of remote worker. So we just think co-working is a, a great, great category to be part of. What is your vision for coworkers? So you mentioned right now it's kind of like the trip advisor for coworking spaces. Uh, where do you? What is your vision for the company? Well, we really want to try to intertwine the entire ecosystem of coworking. So at a base level, you have coworking spaces, right? And that's that's how everyone gets to know coworking is in a, in a sense. A city like New York right now will already have over two hundred coworking spaces. I'm in Barcelona at the moment. There's a hundred coworking spaces here, and it's. And it's growing really, really quick. But the, that's not that's not the entire piece of the puzzle. It's uh, it's events, it's experiences. So there's co-working retreats all around the world. You can go on co-working cruises. 
uh, there's, there's just unlimited social events and networking events that are part of the co-working industry. Uh, and then it's, it's getting into co-living in a sense. So co-living is, is almost bringing co-working to the household where you get a big house or a big apartment building that has co-working facilities in it and you get like-minded people. So we think it's kind of endless, but our goal longer term is always going to be to intertwine the entire co-working category into into one centralized uh, utility. Yeah, the sharing economy is definitely uh, very, very exciting. And uh, just looking at the developments is uh, is yeah. truly exciting to see it what's going fun. on. It is fun. Now, let's jump into the investment side. So completely different skill set, right? <laughs> then starting <laughs> a business. One that's still evolving for sure. Yeah, exactly. So uh, t- tell me about your, your background too. You had, you had shared that you had an investing experience prior to selling your company, but share a little bit about your background just from an investing perspective and well, where you are currently. Sure. Well, I, I, I grew up with traditional advice of you know, save money for 40 years and grow it at 8%. You'll be a millionaire by the time you want to retire, which which never seemed practical or, or very interesting. I always wanted to create wealth while I was young and uh, and enjoy it while I was young. But that being said, my investing background was horrible. It was dotted with failures and write-offs. I, I, some of the things I look back on, I just shake my head. But of course, if you don't have the background and you don't have the advice or the mentorship, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to try things and you're not going to do your due diligence and you're going to lose. And I think anyone who does investing for long enough will have some of those, but it's all about learning. So afterwards, of course, after the exit, I was, you know, I was hit with a windfall of, of money and I didn't know what to do. Uh, I gave most of it to an advisor, which turned out to be one of the biggest investing mistakes I'd ever made. And what I realized was, is this, there's just a wealth of information out there about investing, but it's all boring as hell. And it's very hard to sit down and read a book on investing and, and, and keep your mind focused on it. So we thought, you know, the best way to learn about this stuff before I start investing my other money is just to interview the smartest people we could. One book that I always love, and I know people that are really high up in finance, sometimes they dog it, but it's called Money Master of the Game by Tony Robbins. And when I read that, it gave me some principles to really build off of. And I immediately looked into my financial advisors and was like, okay, these guys are full of BS. They've been you know, ripping me off for a few years and underperforming the markets. And, and uh, you know, it's just like a light switch went off. And we said, okay, let's start a podcast on that. And, you know, that's, that's what we do every day now. I'm, I'm learning about how to invest. I still have a lot to learn. But, you know, comparatively to two years ago, it's, uh, it's night and day to, to the, the intel that I know and, and the decisions that I make around investing, I think, are, are pretty solid right now. Yeah, and I think uh, you touched on it too. There isn't any information in our schools, and I know I've ranted on the show a couple of times about yeah. this, but you don't get taught any of these things in schools. And this is such a truly such a a, a powerful skill set that actually empowers people and prepares them for the real world if they would have financial education. So we have yeah. an industrial age school model based on the Prussian school system. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. We're in 2017, guys, and we're still going into classrooms with bells ringing, telling us <laughs> what, take out our books, you know, and, uh, oh, it's a break now. There's another bell ringing, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, yeah. kind, of, it's kind of absurd. 
But um, not to rant on that too long, but they truly don't teach you that, that, that power. And I've always said, too, that financial management and managing your wealth and, and your own uh, um, growing and protecting your own wealth, um, that is a skill set that should be in-house. That's your responsibility. It's not an advisor's responsibility or anybody else. Um, you know, there are obviously things like if I, if I have to um, – have to do some dental work, right? I'm not going to attempt to do some dental work on myself. <laughs> That's a, that, that is something that I outsource to someone else. But taking care of yourself and your family um, and, and by empowering yourself and, and growing your wealth and taking responsibility for it, that is something that definitely should be in-house. Agree totally. And to your point, I mean, what you're doing on your podcast is great. And I you know, I, I wish there was more and more of this stuff that was available. And I think it should be mandatory in school because so many people get out and make just terrible financial decisions out of high school, in college, they go into debt, they give their money to somebody that they don't know how to vet. And it's very hard to get out of that, right? Without a, you know, a lot, a lot of focus and a lot of clarity. And so a lot of people, unfortunately, make big mistakes between the ages of 22 to 25, not, not just in financial decisions, but life decisions that impact their, their financial goals. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very upward, uh, upward, uh, uphill battle from that point forward. So I think the more that, you know, we can, edu- we can learn ourselves and educate younger and the, the generation underneath us to make better decisions, uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're helping people. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that I've seen with, with very wealthy families too is the advisors that they have and, and financial planners and so forth that's involved. It, the focus isn't just on selling them something. It's an educational uh, yes. experience. So the main driver and goal is to educate the client to be able to make the correct decision. They're still making the decision. They're still the leader um, of their own life and their they're, they're in charge of growing their wealth. They're drawing uh, all these uh, this advice and experience from other folks. So, you know, if people are working with someone, I always say, you know, please make sure that they educate you and inform you uh, and, and show you all the different options so that you are able to make a uh, informed decision. And when you touched upon the student loans you just mentioned, you know, it's, it's actually, it's just criminal actually what they're doing to, uh, to 18, 18 year olds really, right? Because you're gra- graduating high school, you're signing on to something that you have no idea what you're signing on for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have no idea the, the consequences, how it works, the paybacks. Um, and then also, um, the fact that you can't get out from underneath it, even through filing bankruptcy. I agree totally. It, uh, I just shake my head when I hear these things. And, that, and unfortunately, there's, there's so many stories out there of people that are in those positions. And hopefully, we, you know, we can give them information to, to help them get out of that. And what you said about advisors, I mean, there's great advisors out there. But people, and I think when people first come into money, that's kind of the de facto thing to do. Give it to an advisor. There are great advisors out there, but you have to know how to look for them. And you know, have to know how to vet them. Uh, we just had Phil Town, who's a, a hedge fund manager, a great guy on our on our podcast, and he was talking about Morgan Stanley. I used to have my money with Morgan Stanley, and they did a horrible job. I mean, they over the course of three years, my account lost money when it should have. If I had just put it in the market, like in the S and P five hundred or something like that, 
it would have grown at over 30%, which is a, a huge loss, right? Right. And he was saying, Morgan Stanley, they don't even teach you investing skills. They only teach you how to sell, which is, again, talking about criminal. I mean, that's horrible, right? right. So uh, I think a lot of this stuff's being shaken up and people are being held more accountable and, and hopefully the whole whole industry and everyone starts making better decisions. Yeah, especially with all the information out there and and sharing th- uh, information such as on your podcast too. Now, with some of the people that you've uh, interviewed, what were some of the interesting things that you that you learned? Uh, maybe share some aha moments of uh, principles to investing, checklists, and what they do with their money. Oh man, that's that could go into uh, a couple hour tangent, but <laughs> I think you know so much of investing seems to be kind of in or in or around the market. So I've, I've learned a lot of principles about investing in the market. And I think the type of investing that I do is passive investing. So it's a, you know, I, I typically actually like robo advisors because it's kind of being, it's essentially being the market in a smart tax efficient way. I know there's a lot of people that are, would say, you know, stay away from them. They charge you 15 basis points. Um, and you have to you have to be willing to take a fifty percent drawdown at some point. That's okay for me because the money that I have in the market is long term. The mistakes I made before were I was giving it to an advisor that was charging one one point five percent and had discretion over my account, and they were making bad decisions and ended up losing money. Uh, so you know we've had on Wealthfront CEO, Bet, uh, Betterment CEO, a lot of a lot of people that do their own uh, investing in the market. And I think for me, the biggest principle of market investing is as long as I'm taking a, a 20 or 30 year time frame on this stuff, I'm putting it in the market and I'm not touching it. Uh, Meb Faber is like one of my, my favorite guys in that category. He, he did a, a long detailed analysis of about 15 different portfolios that you could have chosen over the last 40 or 50 years. And the difference in them over that, that time span was almost nothing. So his whole takeaway was, you know, diversify and then set it and just forget about it. Like don't, don't obsess about the little details and the small rebalancing and everything. So for my style of investing, uh, that's the big takeaway. And then I would say the other big one is there are just tons of new modern ways to invest. So that's, that's what we spend a lot of time on is investigating these new types of, of uh, technology and, and digitally enabled investment platforms and crowdfunding for real estate, crowdfunding for equity, uh, buying music royalties, stuff like that. So there's a lot of new interesting things that and ways to invest your money that will give you non-correlated returns to the market. No, very, very cool. Uh, now, one habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people, Sam, is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skill sets. What are you currently studying and what, are you, uh, what skill sets are you currently learning? Well, I'm in Spain right now, so I wouldn't say I'm studying, but I'm, I'm drinking wine. <laughs> and well, I'm, I'm learning the grapes well. I know you're from Stellenbosch, one yeah. of my favorite, favorite wine regions in the world. Beautiful, beautiful place. If anyone hasn't been there, get there. It's amazing. Uh, but no, on a serious note, I'm, I'm studying investing. It's uh, well, and, and co-working as a, as an industry just uh, because of the business, but investing is uh, extremely important. Financial literacy is extremely important. So I've, I've pretty much called off all types of other types of learning that I was trying to do and saved it for another day in the future. But this last year and this forward year is it's all about investing and learning all different sides of investing. And then once, once I think you've crammed that and understand that you can go through life a lot more confidently and, um, and, and also less emotionally, right? When you understand 
money and you understand markets and how they perform and, and their behavior, you take some of the emotion out of it. And I think that's a very important thing for the future of anyone's life. It's so true. And that's one thing that I've seen from very successful investors and some of the mentors that I have too. It's there's, there's not emotion involved and money is an emotional subject. And that ties into increasing your emotional IQ at the same time with your financial IQ, because that, you know, you'll be, you'll be calmer, (laughs) uh, (laughs) make decisions and uh, yeah, not let emotions take over uh, your decision-making. Now, Sam, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, Mm -hmm. and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? I bet you have some... I would love to see a collection of all of yours that you've, you've gotten through all of your previous interviews. I think that would be really fascinating content. Um, have you ever read the, have you ever read Ted Turner's book that is call me Ted? I I have. Okay. So in that book, first off, I think it's a fantastic book and I, I have a lot of respect for, for Ted Turner, especially after reading his book. I know he's somewhat controversial, but in his book, uh, there was a message he was passed down from his dad and his dad unfortunately committed suicide because he had achieved his his level of success, his goals by the age of I think forty, uh, and and there was there was nothing left after him for for him to do, and he wasn't able to reset his goals. And I the message was essentially set your goals so big that you cannot possibly achieve them in a lifetime. And when you need reach new goals, make sure to reset them. And I think that is especially for someone who's very driven, maybe a, a Type A personality, has a lot of goals. You have to set your goals bigger than where you can ever get. And that that will keep you motivated and excited every single day that you wake up. So that would be one. I think the second one, which is extremely important, something that I write down and I have on my my daily kind of notebook uh, that you've already touched on is to always be learning. And oftentimes that means having a teacher in your life. And that, that could be a mentor. And that could be a golf instructor. That could be someone that's teaching you yoga. That could be you know, hosting the, your podcast and, and learning from people, but always be learning and always be talking to people that are smarter than you in some category. Cause that will, that will make you feel like a great sense of accomplishment. And, and, uh, I think it's just something that you can do until the last day of your life into a very old age that will always give you satisfaction and fulfillment. And a three, let me think, I would say that no man is an island and Everyone that I know that has achieved a significant state of wealth um, or, or mastery of some type of discipline has always had really good mentors and or partners. And don't try to do everything yourself. And definitely don't be shy to ask for help. Because even if someone says they're self-made and they, they, you know, they did this and that, they learn from somebody. And they might not have been someone talking to them on the phone or, or holding their hand, but they learned from somebody, somebody that wrote a blog or someone that inspired them somewhere uh, and gave them knowledge. So don't try to do anything, everything by yourself. Find good people to bring into your life to work with and definitely don't be afraid to ask them for help. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Sam, how can my listeners learn more about you, your company, your podcast, and stay informed of all of the projects that you're involved with? Uh, MC, uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, 
my podcast is Invest Like a Boss. And as we said, the, the company that I'm working on with my partner, Leanne Beasley, is coworker.com. Uh, but other than that, feel free to feel free to share my social details. And if people want to connect, ask me any questions, I'm happy to to connect and answer. Fantastic. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. This has been a blast connecting. MC, it's been great. And I look forward to having you on our podcast in the uh, very near future. Very excited to come on. Sounds good. We'll chat soon. This is MC Laubscher, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. As you may know, I'm also the president and chief wealth strategist of Alhalla Wealth Financial. We help individuals, families, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and professionals build their wealth outside of Wall Street and help investors maximize the use of every dollar in their personal economy and boost their investment gains. We do this by combining the capital and investments with the financial vehicle of the wealthy according to the infinite banking concept. If you're interested to learn more about privatized banking and the infinite banking concept, you can access an exclusive webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Thank you for joining my guest, Sam Marks, and myself on the Cashflow Ninja today. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. I'm always trying to learn and improve in every area of my life, so if there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please reach out to me at info at cashflowninja.com. If you're not a subscriber to the Cashflow Ninja Gushku newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com or text Cashflow Ninja to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. You can also support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. When you become a patron for 12 months, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott have been in your shoes and have used real estate investing to become financially free. They've designed a system to take any beginner to an experienced deal-making investor in the least amount of time. They offer opportunities from basic education, coaching, bridge loan investing to turnkey investments in the cash-flowing market of St. Louis, Missouri. For more information, please visit joinupsproperties.com or call Jimmy and Bob at 314-799-2247. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash private lending. Creating passive income for you and your family is easier than you think. All you need are three things. The right plan, the right product, and the right turnkey provider. As an investor, you want a safe, profitable, and convenient way to invest your capital without being at the mercy of stock market fluctuation. Investing in real estate in a turnkey way that provides monthly passive income with very low risk is exactly what Spartan Invest provides for their clients. Their mission is to make investing in real estate easy for the busy professional. Spartan Invest help investors create passive income and wealth through turnkey ownership in Birmingham, Alabama. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama, at cashflowninja.com forward slash Spartan.
the wealthiest families on the planet know how to capture their wealth and then leveraging their wealth through their own banking system. If you're interested in privatized banking and the infinite banking concept and learning the premier strategies of the wealthiest individuals and families on the planet, you can access your free webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. That's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. 